and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Amy and I had big plans for what we were going to do for the end of December shows, but as is 2020's way, our plans went haywire. And so we had recorded, and that didn't work out. And so we had to push that to season four. So we're going to rebroadcast episode 31, where Laura Lucchese was our guest, and she talked about cookbooks. So we thought that would be a, a nice way to prepare for this week's Christmas holiday. We've got uh, an idea up our sleeve, so we're hoping that technology cooperates with us and we're able to bring a fun episode to listeners for the very end of December, but it is 2020, so we're not making any promises. There is a saying, if you want a happy ending, read a cookbook. Our guest, Laura Lucchese, is in a book club that always ends well because her group reads and then produces a group meal from cookbooks. James Beard, the great culinary expert, said, Food is our common ground, a universal experience. In our mind, to bring books and food together is a match made in heaven. Laura tells us how many cookbooks have a narrative story just like her traditional book, why cooking from a cuisine outside your own encourages discussion, and how modern cookbooks offer a different philosophy to entertaining that diverges from the older, well-known cookbook authors like Martha Stewart. We have a guest today. Her name is Laura Lucchese, and she is the creator of the Louisville Cookbook Club. So we are so excited to have you. And we're going to talk about your book club. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm 34. I'm originally from the northern Kentucky area. I met a guy from Louisville, and we got married, and we live in the Highlands near Cherokee Park with our dog, and I love it in Louisville. I'm happy to be here. I've been here about five years now. Tell us a little bit about your cookbook club and how it came to be. So I actually went to a meetups.com book club that I saw online and met a girl there, and we were chatting about the book. The book at that time was The Milkman by Anna Burns, but I did not care for the book, so we were just kind of going off topic, and we were chatting probably about food or books, and we had both talked about a cookbook that had come out recently, and we just sparked and I brought up the idea of starting a cookbook club and she said that's like my dream club so I asked her for her email address and I emailed her the next day and a month later we had our first meeting. Do you have a background in in cooking or is it just something you enjoy doing? I think we both had a passion for cookbooks and cooking obviously I I love to cook she loves to cook and entertain have people over and talk about recipes and food and restaurants so it just seemed like a perfect fit. How long has it been going on? I met Brie in February of last year and we had the first 
meeting a month after that. So we're coming up on a year um, next month. How does it work? Because I'm imagining if you did a cookbook every month, that would get kind of pricey. How, how does it work? So we pick a book each month. And a lot of times, because Brie and I like to collect cookbooks, we have the book and we'll pass it around to other members. Or nowadays, you can kind of Google the cookbook name and a lot of free recipes will come up online from other people reviewing it. So you can kind of get recipes that way. And the only other thing differently that we do is we chose Joshua McFadden's Six Seasons Cookbook as our foundation book. So to your point, if you don't want to get a new cookbook. If you're not as passionate as Brie and I are, you can always choose to cook something from that cookbook for any of the meetings for that year. So that's really an investment of only one book if you want to be involved. And so for this year, our new one is Simple by Odalangi. But basically, we pick a book for every month and everyone, it's it's just a potluck and they come. I host all of the meetings at my house because I have a pretty open space and it's kind of a central location for everybody and it, it works out. I love doing the hosting part, but everyone's allowed to choose any recipe from the book, appetizers, desserts, drinks, and we just bring it all for kind of a potluck and conversation about the book. We chat about how they write the recipes or what we thought of the recipes, the characters in the books, whether it's like the author's families or, you know, people that they cook for. So we just chat about the book and eat the food and drink a lot of wine. And then what is better than that? Really? (laughs) We pick a next book for the next meeting. We meet every five to six weeks, I'd say. The base cookbook that you're talking about, is it oftentimes like sort of a general cookbook like I'm thinking of something like you know the joy of cooking or a classic kind of cookbook that has classic recipes is it that type of cookbook I think we're trying to do a new modern take on a classic like Joshua McFadden's book is called Six Seasons and so it's broken down seasonally for the different vegetables that you can use so it was really helpful to have that throughout a year to be able to Look at the winter recipes versus midsummer, depending which time we are meeting. And then, you know, this one, he's a pretty famous cookbook author and his recipes. We wanted something simple because it also encourages people to come. A lot of people aren't as passionate about cooking. They care more about the socializing and the chatting. So we're just trying to draw in more people by making it more accessible kind of cookbooks. So I do not like to cook. So I guess one of my questions is, and you sort of answered it, but so you don't have to necessarily love, you know, be super passionate about it or even be a good cook to be part of the book club? Definitely. There's there's a range of us that are passion levels regarding cooking i mean you can just bring wine if you want we need eaters because the other problem is is that we <laughs> I always love that. We end need eaters. <laughs> making we go overboard and there's always so much excess and we do we're good about each splitting up leftovers but we just at this point eaters would be helpful too so <laughs> and we love chatting about food so we'd like to hear an outsider's opinion we love to critique our own food it's part of the fun of it so so are you still on meetup.com or has it become more of a private group? It's a private group. We initially just started with Bree's group of friends and mine and brought them together and just word of mouth. Other people have come into it also. So we're open to new members, but it just kind of How many better. members do you have right now? The smallest group that we've had is probably just three of us that have come one month and that was a really terrible cookbook anyway. So we just... <laughs> We've had as many as like 12, I think. So I'm interested in what you were saying about the things that you discuss. So it's not even completely about just the recipes. So I am a foodie and I do love to just look through cookbooks. But you're right. Oftentimes, especially now in cookbooks, there's a character. It could be the recipe 
developer. There's a lot of cookbooks written by food bloggers now, and a lot of times they're very good writers. I'm thinking of Deb Perlman from The Smitten Kitchen. She's an amazing writer. And so her personality like really comes through in her descriptions of the recipes and her processes. So tell us some of the things that you talk about. We definitely talk about that, and I think that it's interesting – how you said we we like the different voices we've really gravitated we did smitten kitchens cookbook this year and allison romans and those were two of our favorite ones i think because they resonated so much with us how they wrote the recipe we try to follow the recipes and we'll even our intuition may be telling us to roast it a little longer or add more salt but we try to stay true and try to follow their vision so we can talk about it and critique it so we talk about just the cookbook as a book you know, how the sections are separated either by seasonality or cuisine or vegetable and talk about the recipes. And mostly we talk about the food. So we have anywhere from four to 10 dishes that we try from the book, including appetizers, desserts, drinks that we make. And it's the most fun to talk about the things that we brought. Do you have a system? Have you ever had a situation where it's really appetizer heavy or it's really dessert heavy? No, never. We always get a really wide range of dishes to try. I've been kind of known to take on, since I'm hosting it, I try to do a bigger, maybe something that has to come out of the oven right away and eat nice and hot. I did arancini last time, so I was frying the risotto balls after people arrive so you can have them nice and hot so I try to take on those kind of recipes and other people have kind of fallen into their roles too we have a girl from England in our club and she tends to bring the the beans and the lentils and her kind of favorite food so so you don't sign up for a course you just Just bring bring it Mm -hmm. as somebody who often organizes parties and things I'm impressed because it seems like we're always everybody's always brought a dessert or everybody and there's like no main course (laughs) (laughs) so I'm impressed that it works out so well for you we have become friends outside of the group and a lot of them are friends anyway so we do chat about what we're bringing admittedly I mean so okay but it's never been an issue So how do you pick the books each month? Are there any special limitations in the type of cookbooks that you do? We've really tried to just go all over the board. I would say Brie was instrumental in picking. I mean, it's just we kind of suggest them, and she worked at a bookstore for so long, and so she was seeing the new cookbooks, and I'm kind of up on the cookbook culture and what was coming out. So we try to pick newer within the past couple years. We have yet to do like a classic cookbook, but that's on the docket for this year probably as a non-foodie in the conversation. One thing I've noticed, so I I just don't like to cook. Like I cook because I have to eat and I don't like spending money. So I don't go out to eat very often. I cook because I'm cheap too. But (laughs) one one of the things that I've noticed about like when I look up recipes online is I just want the recipe. I don't need to know like what inspired the recipe and all that stuff. With that being said, I don't know a lot about cookbooks. Do the cookbooks kind of vary in terms of how much information they give? Or is a lot of it more of a story with recipes inserted? Yeah, I think that you should get Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything because it's more of like a dictionary straightforward. (laughs) This is how you cook that. But I live for the stories and the descriptions of the authors and their experiences. It helps bring some context to like the food that they cook for me. So I dig an article. I love the cookbooks where there's more of a discourse with the reader about how they develop the recipes and 
things like that. But some people don't sit down and read cookbooks like I do. I go to the each cookbook club having read the cookbook cover to cover, but you know, other people cherry pick recipes instead. So we each have something to bring to it. Are there any tricks to reading a, a cookbook? A tricks to reading them. Um, I read them in bed. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I have them on my bedstand with my little stack of post-its. So I just like mark up recipes. And so just... you're like annotating your cookbook. I guess so. <laughs> I sleep well after that. I love thinking about food all the time. I'm always thinking about food so right before bed. I think I find it comforting. So what's the demographic like? Is everyone a similar age, gender? Sure. I would say, yeah, we're probably 30s, 30s and 40s. Uh, we have had a couple guys a few times. We love the guys and gals, so yeah. And and the men have cooked. Yeah, we That's have awesome. men that, that really one. One is a nude father, so we haven't seen him in a few months. But yeah, the men cook. They love it. So in the books that you've read in the last year, how diverse were some of the ones that you all picked? I mean, have you done like Indian food and, oh, and yeah. different kinds? Tell us a little bit about the diversity that's one of the most fun things for us i think is actually picking a more diverse cookbook we did indianish last year and bottom of the pot so that was indian and persian so it was cool actually to go out in louisville and find those like indian grocery stores and the persian grocery to get the specialty ingredients those stand out as being two of our favorite ones that we've had this year just the smells of it how different it is how beautiful the food was. So we're, we're into that. I was just saying we haven't had a Mexican cookbook yet, so that's going to be on the list for next year. How did that affect the discussion? Do you think that doing some of the ethnic cookbooks, the, the ingredients are oh, not super known to you, might in- inspire interesting conversation? Oh, it was a much richer discussion, and it was a whole, I mean, leading up to it, because I got some specialty ingredients and they came over to get their little samples of it because you only need a little bit of this and that. So that definitely has richer discussions with more a variety of topics to talk about as far as ingredients go. Did any of the members who attended, did they feel a little bit intimidated with cooking some of these recipes because of the ingredients or maybe just not having experience delving into those ethnic recipes? Oh, for sure. And I just think people kind of stayed in their comfort zone uh, we like to push ourselves and try things that, you know, never had before. But a lot of times in cookbooks, there's a lot of recipes to choose from and someone can always choose something within their comfort zone to an extent using different flavors. So I'm intrigued by the cookbook that you were talking about called Indianish. That one for our club, everyone just, that was so beloved by everyone that cooked from that book. Priya Krishna had a super special relationship with her mom. She actually wrote the book with her mom. And you could just feel the love from the recipes and on the pages and her love for her mom and her upbringing. And I thought that was just a beautiful story kind of interwoven through all the recipes. You know, she grew up in Texas with, you know, Indian parents and she wanted to have pizza on Friday like all of her kids at school. So her parents, her mom in particular said, well, we'll just do our Indian spin on pizza and use roti instead of pizza crust and use cheddar and chutney as toppings instead of mozzarella and pepperoni and kind of made it their own and still, you know, looked for ways to kind of bring in their culture to the American culture that they were living in and how grateful and thankful she was of her mom for doing that for them and bringing them closer to their kin and their in their classroom and stuff, but also maintaining their culture at the same time. And every recipe in that book from the club, just it, it just hit. We, we loved it. The roti pizzas that we made, I made the sag paneer with feta that turned out great. And 
just every recipe was very special and, and good. And then, like I said, just the story of the cookbook was a beautiful story, love story between her and her mom and her family. So that was a fun read as well. So the title Indian-ish refers to the fact that it's not a straight up Indian cookbook. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's because when they grew up in Texas, they didn't have access to the kind of ingredients that we do now. There's an amazing Indian store in Louisville that I went to to kind of source some of the ingredients. But for example, the sag paneer with feta, she used feta because she couldn't find the paneer, which is like an Indian cheese where they were growing up in Texas. So she just used what they had and did an Indianish spin on American food. That was fun. Although when I went to source the ingredients myself, I'm like, well, I can get paneer. Should I just make it with paneer? But right. I, I stuck with the feta to, to keep it real to the book. But that was delicious. It turned out great. That surprises me a little bit. We're huge Indian food lovers, but mm-hmm. paneer is sort of a mild taste where feta is a much stronger, saltier mm-hmm. taste. So I would think that they wouldn't actually comp very well at all, but it does. It does. It was delicious. The, the feta kind of kept its integrity in the spinachy, spicy sauce. It was absolutely delicious. I don't know if I'd make it another way. I'm going to have to buy that cookbook now. But oh, I wanted to mention one. a book to you that this reminds me of a little bit called Buttermilk Graffiti. Yeah, have you by heard Edward of that? Lee. Yes. By Edward Lee. Have you read that book? Yes, I have. Okay. I'm a big fan of Edward Lee. He's kind of like the top chef of Kentucky. He's, he is. He's very famous here. For our listeners, he's a famous chef in Louisville, but has done Top Chef and mm-hmm. some other things. Um, he's got several restaurants, but he's written several books. And they're not cookbooks per se, but there are recipes in them. But Buttermilk Graffiti is about his travels around the country, specifically to immigrant communities within the United States and how they have taken their native cuisines and sort of tweaked them for American taste as part of the melting pot experience. Right. And there are a lot of recipes in that book. I really liked that book and thought it said some interesting things about just the melting pot culture of the United States, being able to keep somewhat of your own culture, but then also trying to assimilate to what's around you. Right. Agree. I'm a big fan of Edward Lee. I love both of his books. Uh, Smoke and Pickles, I believe, is the other I ha- one. I've only read Buttermilk Graffiti, so okay. I'll have to try have to some to check of his out others. the next one, yeah. Well, what's been a book that you think has inspired the best discussion or was the best meal? We ended the year on a pretty high note with Allison Roman's Dining In. She's just a 30-something in New York, and we really her, her voice resonated with us. Her food was fun to cook. It was how we like to eat and have people over, and everything turned out well. Like We've had some cookbooks that were just total, like two that I can think of that were pretty disappointing, but that cookbook club, that meeting in particular, was just aces all around. So the cookbooks that were disappointing, what was it about them that you felt like it just didn't fly? Yeah, since we're all relatively good cookers, we were able to kind of nitpick her recipes, and we don't think they were well-written. This was Every Day is Saturday. I forget the author's name. I didn't keep that cookbook. That's one that I just (laughs) got from the library instead, and I'm glad I did. Just lacking recipes with good directions and just under-seasoned. Well, because they're supposed to to have maybe either the cookbook author or the publishing house they often have people or they're supposed to i believe who test the recipes and i have tried recipes the pictures are beautiful and then when you try them they just don't work when i taught full time i used to have my students do like a how-to and it was funny you know and i know they're kids but i think even adults sometimes do this 
when you have to write down the steps to the point that somebody else could do what it is you're doing. I mean, I think everybody sort of leaves out steps. Unfortunately, it sounds like, you know, maybe their food editors didn't take the proper steps that they needed to to test it. But quality control apparently wasn't maybe an issue. Maybe they had somebody like me in the kitchen. I don't know. You were saying um, with the Allison Roman cookbook that that's the way you and your friends or many people in the cookbook club liked to cook. So how is that different from any other cookbook. Allison Roman's great, aside from the fact that every recipe of hers has always worked out for us from New York Times and her cookbooks and even her old Bon Appetit recipes. But she has two cookbooks out now. The first one is called Dining In. And I've met very few people in my life that don't enjoy dining out. I love going to restaurants and picking restaurants and looking at menus ahead of time. And this whole book is the concept of you can have all of that great kind of restaurant food at home. You can dine in and make it special and not just get food on the table because you have to. You can put a little bit more thought into your meals and it doesn't have to be fussy and you can have something just as good as you would have dining out at a restaurant, but obviously saving a lot of money. On the other hand, her follow-up book was called um, Nothing Fancy and I love her for that. Her basis of that book is that you're not entertaining, you're just having people over. So it's a very casual, not overly stylized book about food that you can make when, you know, you have people over from dips um, to a delicious roast chicken to just unfussy desserts. And I think we've come a long way from Martha Stewart has a cookbook that's just all her guide to entertaining. Sort of like the quintessential dinner party. Yeah. Yeah. And she just has an approach to it that's just very laid back and casual and cool. And I love that about her. And nothing is too fussy to make. And I think that's where our culture is kind of going to. We're not laboring over little canapes or really fussy appetizers. It's just casual and comfortable food. Um, She does use a lot of anchovies, which I'm trying to get used to. That's not something I had a lot of experience with before. So she's really broadening broadening my horizons in that way. But I just love her, the concepts of both books. And I'm I'm just really looking forward to what else she has to say. I know she got another two book deal. So we'll we'll see what's next. I used to always buy cookbooks. And then when Pinterest came around Mm -hmm. and you could just sort of search on Pinterest, you wanted to find something new to do with chicken breasts and you could just put in chicken breasts and you get like a million different hits for different things you could do with chicken breasts. And they would they would go to different food blogs or even magazines. I stopped buying as many cookbooks. And one of the things that I liked at that time about doing that was that people would often comment about how the recipe had turned out for them. And you didn't necessarily get that with a physical cookbook. People can't comment in the back of your book. Or maybe they can. Do you know, are there websites related to the cookbooks where people do get on there and kind of comment and yes give their feedback oh let me introduce you to eatyourbooks.com oh um you can do a monthly subscription or a yearly i think it's three bucks a month or 20 bucks for a year and they have a huge cookbook database you check all the ones that you have it kind of puts it into your library and so you can search recipes via those cookbooks it'll just bring up the ingredient list so you have to refer to your book for the actual recipe but more often than not people have commented on those recipes with their photos and given it a rating so i'll pluck a cookbook from my shelf and pull it up on eat your books and then look at all the recipes based on the rating and pick something from there because i do feel a little bit more comfortable like you said cooking something that is has been vetted by at right. least one other person right so 
I absolutely love it. And it gets me cooking from my books more often because like you said, there are so many magazines and blogs and family recipes, but I just love consuming all of the food culture of that. And I still, I want my cookbooks to get love and they do. I cook from my books all the time because a lot of this website helps. That's very cool. I've never even heard of that. I know that's that's really awesome. So it sounds I didn't like know that it sounds like sort of like Goodreads except for mm-hmm. cookbooks. Yeah. Huh. So are there any other reasons that you like cooking from an old-fashioned print cookbook as opposed to digital? I don't know things? why. I've thought about that because I'm a huge reader and I've just cut back my how many books I have. I do a lot of Audible and electronic books now. So, but cookbooks, I just can't. I can't quit them. I don't know if it's my mom had a big collection and collected some cookbooks and gave some down to me. And those are important to me. But I just love cooking from a cookbook. Do you see that there's a difference between in terms of the visuals and the font and all that stuff that maybe you're, you're not going to get from just pulling up a random recipe? Is, is that part of it? Sort of like the visual experience of a cookbook as opposed to just you know, looking up something online. Sure. I mean, anything tangible is always like more exciting when you can touch it and feel it. And, but I mean, not necessarily. But it sounds like the cookbooks that you gravitate towards now are cookbooks that sort of have a a story Mm -hmm, with a voice with them. So they're more like a, a non cookbook book, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to just a book that only has just recipes and no narrative, I guess you would say. To and back even, it up. And even photos. I think a cookbook without photos is no fun either. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. It's got to have some pictures. I need the visual just to have some idea of what I'm doing. Like, okay, what's this supposed to end up looking like? America's Test Kitchen, and I forget the name of the guy who runs that, but they're supposed to have amazing recipes, and they test them like a million different... Christopher Kimball. Yes. And they test them a million different times, but I have one or two of those cookbooks, and there's virtually no pictures in it. And the ones that they do have are line drawings, and I've never cooked anything out of them, I think because of that. Nothing, like, inspired me Mm -hmm. to cook it. It's no fun, yeah. Mm. So would you say that the Allison Roman book that you were talking about has been the favorite cookbook in the last year? I would say that and then a close second would be The Bottom of the Pot. That's the Persian cookbook that we did. And that was just the most beautiful table of food and everything turned out really well. And again, it was a really great discussion about the different spices that we weren't used to using and the different dishes we We've never made. I made a tadig, which is the crispy rice mm, that you have that. to flip out, and it turned out perfectly. So that was just a, a great book. So when you are picking a, a cookbook, are you looking for that narrative and the visual? Is that what you're looking for? I mean, how much time do you spend weighing those things versus the actual recipes that are part of that cookbook? It's usually a tipsy discussion at the end of the cookbook club, The Current. We'll we'll sit around and chat about what's next, what have we been hearing about, what's gotten good reviews, of maybe a cuisine that we haven't tapped into yet, or an author that we're interested in. And we all just kind of agree on one and move forward. Okay. We don't spend too much time belaboring the process of picking the next book. So it's more of a democratic process to pick the book. Right, totally. Okay. So in what ways do you think that your cookbook club is like a traditional book club, and how is it different? There's probably a little less discussion of the book critically or trying to think of meanings of things deeply. No symbolism. <laughs> no You're symbolism. not looking for symbolism. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I mean, I was part of a book club for like five years in Northern Kentucky, and it was a lot of eating and drinking. This is a lot of eating, eating and, and drinking. drinking. <laughs> so, Are you in a traditional book club now? 
No, not currently. I went to one meetup book club and I didn't love the book. And that's where I met Brie and started this other club. But no, it's something I missed. I did for a long time, all through my 20s in Northern Kentucky. But it sounds like this is capturing a little bit of something that you liked in the one that you had been in before. Totally. Yeah. What do you think that the members from your group walk away with after? Besides, hopefully, a great meal. (laughs) Yeah, they get leftovers. (laughs) Leftovers. And new ideas. Cooking can be monotonous and boring, and it's just really exciting to kind of shake things up with a different kind of cuisine or a new dish to you. A lot of stuff that we've cooked in cookbook clubs have become part of my regular rotation of food, so I love that. Prior to creating this club, do you feel like you were less likely to try new things or were you always trying new dishes? I I just wonder, being in the club, has that sort of gotten you to a a different cooking groove? Not necessarily. I would, I think I'm a pretty ambitious cook and I know Ina Garten says never cook something that you've never cooked before for a company, but I do that all the time. So this cookbook club is just a fun way for me to do that and then just be able to critique it and tear it apart and say whether it's good or how I would do it different next time without making my dinner guests suffer through that <laughs> conversation with me. Because I would assume if things don't turn out, hopefully it's not, not a, a big, big deal. deal. We laugh about it. But it's kind of nice to have some, I mean, that one book, Every Day is Saturday, nothing turned out. And we don't want laughable. something where nothing is edible. <laughs> right. It was hilariously bad. That but. sounds like every night of my life no. is what I cook. <laughs> Every day is Saturday in my house. (laughs) Do you read or has your group ever done a book that's foodie fiction or a foodie memoir? And I'm thinking of somebody like Ruth Mm -hmm. Reichel or Molly uh, Weisenberg. Because those books do oftentimes have recipes in them. That's true. I did read Ruth's. We've never chosen a book like that. That's a good idea. Again, there's no pictures in Ruth's, so I'm not. No. Yeah, there's no pictures. But yeah, never. I'm open to it. And, but you have read some yourself. Personally, yes. I Again, I consume a lot of food culture. So. Do you have any favorites? I can't think of the name of her last one. It was the... It was Save the, Me the Plums. Was it? Was the la- that was her most so recent one. I liked the one Ruth wrote about when she was the New York Times food critic. And it was before she started or went to gourmet. And so it was that time in her life when she moved to New York and was donning all these disguises. That one's called uh, Garlic and Sapphires. Garlic and Sapphires. Yes. Yes, That was my favorite. She didn't want the restaurants to know that she was a critic (laughs) because she would get different service and different food than all the other diners there. So she would dress up in different disguises and things so they would not know who she was. Your love of cooking and cookbooks must have started somewhere. So what was your first cookbook experience? The one that I can remember first was in college. It was my sophomore year where I started living on my own in a studio apartment. And I ordered the Healthy College Cookbook off Amazon, thinking that was going to teach me how to be healthy and cook on my own in college. And it was recipes like put peanut butter on celery and dot raisins on top. And that's a healthy snack. And you know, fry an egg in a hole. It was very straightforward and simple. And it turned out not to be the way I really liked to cook. That was the first cookbook I remember getting. 
I remember starting as a child and my mother had got me the Better Homes and Gardens Kids Cookbook. And it had funny little things like you're talking about. You made a candlestick out of a pineapple ring and a banana sticking up out of it. And you put a Marciano cherry right on top to be the flame. I mean, it was kind of silly stuff. But after that, I just enjoyed cooking. I've actually been looking into more children's cookbooks and I think they've come a long way since the Yes, I think so. Maybe so. I have two nieces that are six and four and so I want them to get interested in cooking uh, probably to make them less picky eaters but doing some research. The New York Times had a great article on new cookbooks for kids that are real accessible and empowers them to kind of pick out their own ingredients and choose their menus. And I I just love that. I wish I was exposed to that when I was a kid. So I'm curious if somebody's interested in being a part of your club, do you have like a system for how they would get involved or make contact with you all? Yeah. Hit me up. (laughs) LouisvilleCookbookClub at gmail.com. Oh, wow. You have your own Gmail. That's awesome. And if someone was interested in starting their own cookbook club, what advice would you give to someone forming one? I just think you have to do it. As soon as I met another person that was on board, just having the momentum of just one other person, even if it was just us two, I would have been happy doing this, what we do. But I think you just got to do it. I mean, that's all. my only advice was that I just, I did it. And did just like jump no in time. with both just, feet. Yep. Just jump in. If you're, if you want to do it, you're probably excited and as passionate as I am. So just start it. Okay. All right. That's good advice for anything. Cookbook club or yeah, anything. Do it. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're all reading. So we are back with Laura and Carrie here, and as always, I'm going to say, Carrie, what's on your nightstand, and what are you reading? Well, I'm going to talk about a book that I read not too long ago that inspired what I'm currently reading now. What I'm currently reading is this big honkin' book about Vincent Van Gogh, and I will be reading it for the rest of your life, maybe I think. the rest of my life. Yeah, but the book that inspired me to seek out more information about Vincent Van Gogh is a book called How They Choked. Failures, Flops, and Flaws of the Awfully Famous, and it's by Georgia Bragg. And so it's kind of a book for kids. The book has different sections where they talk about, you know, famous individuals who maybe did, you know, stupid things that ended up not working for them. Like causing them to die or just... Well, sometimes it did. Like one of the chapters was about Amelia Earhart. And it talked about basically how reckless she was. And she she didn't take important precautions that probably could have kept her from crashing her plane. And that she was in a number of airplane accidents that were sort of her own fault. You know, ah, like had, okay. she, had she done what she was... What she was she supposed to do? More, yeah. Had, had she been a little bit more careful, you know, her life might have been different. So she's one of the people that was talked about in this book. It talks about Montezuma. You know, that's one of the characters. J. Bruce Ismay. So he was the person who designed the Titanic. Okay. And so a lot of these people, you know, sometimes they made their 
flops, their failures caused them professional problems. And sometimes it caused them personal problems. So I was really intrigued by the chapter on Vincent Van Gogh because, you know, I had always understood that he had committed suicide. But apparently there's some questions about that, that he may have been essentially murdered oh. or, you know, stabbed or shot. I can't remember which one. but um, All terrible ends. All terrible ends. But that intrigued me enough that I did my research and I found out about this Van Gogh book that is like over 800 pages. But it's really interesting and it's really well written. So I know sometimes people are like, oh, it's a kid's book. But I think some books like this, they give you little snippets of information that can then spur you on to find other books that that provide more information. So when you say it's a children's book, are you talking like middle grade? Yes, it's okay. it's definitely it's not a picture book. I listened to it actually as an audio book. And so it it wasn't, you know, terribly long, but it's not a picture book. I would say mm -hmm. definitely, you know, fourth grade and up. But it's kind of one of those books that I call it like biography light. You know, mm -hmm. you can learn quite a bit about somebody and their backstory without having to take on, you know, a big, heavy tome. Although I did decide to take on a big, heavy tome, but nobody made me. You know, that was my choice. So I kind of feel like it's a good book, you know, for kids or for adults who are maybe like to learn a little bit about somebody. It can be a springboard of inspiration. So... I, I recommend it. Laura, what are you reading or have read recently? Well, aside from Simple by Oda Lang Hai, that's on my nightstand because it's our next cookbook club. So I've been reading that in the evenings. But I also have Gary Janetti's Do You Mind If I Cancel? And it's a book of essays, really funny, kind of Sidaris-y. So okay. uh, I'm doing some traveling this week and it's the perfect thing to pick up and put down in between flights. So. Have you read David Sedaris? Everything I think he's ever written. <laughs> okay, so you're a huge fan. I am. I am a huge fan. And so the author, say the author's name again. Gary Janetti. How is he Sedaris like? He's a little dark, um, his humor. This first book, it's of essays of him when he was in his 20s and 30s. And he lives in New York. He's a young gay man at the time. And so it's very reminiscent of Sedaris in the time and like when he was living in Chicago. And he's just witty and sharp and funny. So did you discover him? Were you, you know, looking for somebody who was like David Sedaris or was it an accident? Like it was kind of an accident. I follow him on Instagram because he does these really funny memes about the British royalty, like Meghan and Harry and everybody. It's really funny. And then I saw that he came out with a book. So I was I'm into it. Is this like his first book? I think it's his second book. And as someone who is a David Sedaris lover, do you have a favorite of David Sedaris's? I think Me Talk Pretty One Day is going to be my forever favorite of his. It's my most well-worn book of his. It's the one I've read the most times. I love that one so much. Mm -hmm. I think that's one. That's the book that really made me become a fan. He's been here several times in Louisville. I have, have seen him. him. Yeah, yes. I've seen him one time too. I have not read all of his. I would say I've maybe read three quarters of them. And some of them I really like. And then some of them I really don't like. Occasionally, I feel like he gets almost mean-spirited in right. some of his essays. And so, but not in all of the books, you know, just, I don't know. I just must depend on his mood or whatever. And maybe it depends on your mood. Too. Or maybe it depends on my mood. Sure. But usually I, I do find him funny. And his audiobooks. When he narrates them are hilarious. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of them on audiobook. 
actually I haven't, but I've heard him in with on interviews on like This American Life and things like that for his radio program. Yeah, his voice is just very unique. Besides Sedaris and Janetti, what's in your reading wheelhouse? What kind of things do you normally like to read? Oh, everything. Last year, my favorites were Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, which was the kind of expose about the Theranos scandal oh. from Elizabeth Holmes, which okay. they'll be making into a movie starring, starring Jennifer Lawrence and then also a Hulu series starring Kate McKinnon. That was just enthralling and riveting. So and that's a true crime. Yes. Okay. Page Turner, highly recommend. But then I also loved a book called A Gentleman from Moscow by Amor Tolls. And that was just such a rich and lovely book. That character is still in my head today. Highly recommend. But aside from that, like this year, I'm approaching reading differently. I'm doing a reading challenge with a girlfriend of mine with different prompts to kind of help me pick books or be more thoughtful about what I pick. Because usually if I hear someone recommend it on Instagram or a blog, I'll immediately pull up the library website and request it. And so I just get most of my books through the library. I've kind of stopped purchasing them. So for the reading challenge this year, I've already done a book with at least a four-star rating on Goodreads, which was All the Ugly, Wonderful Things, which was a beautiful book. Kind of going back to food, in that book she mentions cooking for her family, the famous green olive meatloaf recipe. And I was intrigued. I thought, I like olives and meatloaf. So I Googled a recipe and made it this week. My husband was teasing me about having the green olive meatloaf night, but we both really loved it. Some other of the challenges uh, prompts are a book about a book club, a book recommended to you by a podcast, a book with the same title as a movie or TV show. So I've been requesting all these books from the library and I'm really looking forward to kind of reading some things that a little differently than I have before. I think those reading challenges are great, especially for readers who feel like they're sort of stuck in a rut. Like maybe you just read so many historical fiction, World War II books that you just can't read another, but you're not sure what else to read. And I think it it gets you out of your rut, gets you out of your comfort zone a little bit. I've never done the Pop Sugar one. I've done the Modern Mrs. Darcy one, and I've done the um, Book Riot one, and I've attempted one of those. So, So Amy... What have you had going on? Well, this is completely a coincidence, but it fits so well with our topic today. So I read a book called Sourdough by Robin Sloan. It is not a cookbook. It is actually science fiction. And it's a strange little book. And I wouldn't say that it's for everybody, but I found it really inventive and quirky. And I really liked it. I feel like I need to do a little primer before I kind of go into what this book is about for the person who doesn't know what sourdough bread, what makes sourdough bread different than any other kind of bread. So with a regular bread, you just use a dry yeast. Maybe if you've baked, you've gone to the grocery store and you've bought little packets of yeast that comes in these little dried granules, and that's called a cultivated yeast. Sourdough is different, though. It gets its rise from a long fermentation in the dough by using naturally occurring bacteria and yeasts. And the bacteria that it uses, it's called lactobacilli to be exact. And as this ferments, it produces gases and the gas causes the bread to rise. So in comparison with breads made with cultivated yeast though, it has like this a little bit of a sour taste and it's that lactic acid from the lactobacilli that gives it that taste. 
And if you really wanted to, you can make your own sourdough starter by capturing the naturally occurring bacteria and yeast that are in the flour and in the air. Bacteria is all around us. But most people just send away for a culture King Arthur's flour. But you could do it the other way. I read about how to do it. You like put this flour and water in a little jar like on your window. Kind of like (laughs) on your windowsill. And it like after a while kind of captures those things and you kind of grow it. But it is sort of like taking care of a plant or a pet. You have to feed it. Thus, we get to the story of sourdough. So this story is about a young woman. Her name is Lois. And she's in her 20s. And she works as a software programmer for a tech company that focuses on robots and automation. And they're in the San Francisco area. And she's originally from Michigan. She's just moved to San Francisco. So she doesn't know anybody. And she's a little bit lonely. But she starts ordering takeout food at night from a place that stuck a flyer on her apartment door. And it's owned by these two immigrant brothers. The place is called Clement Street Soup and Sourdough. And you just call a number and they deliver it. And she orders the same thing every night. She orders the spicy soup and the bread. And she sort of develops a relationship with the brothers. And in fact, they refer to her lovingly as their number one eater. But there's trouble with the brothers' visas and they have to leave the country. But before they go, they bring to Lois their crock with the sourdough starter for the bread with instructions on how to feed it with flour and water and music. So Lois begins making some of the bread from the starter, even though she's never baked in her life. She's not a cook. She's not a baker. But the bread turns out amazing. And so she starts taking it to work. She gives it away to neighbors. But the sourdough starter begins to have some properties that seem odd for just a run-of-the-mill yeast culture. She starts to think that she can hear it making noises. Occasionally, she thinks that she observes it emitting light. But it makes such great bread, and she doesn't question it too much. Eventually, she starts making enough bread that she supplies her company's cafeteria with bread. And then she decides that she's going to open up a stall at the local farmer's market. But this market isn't just any old market. It's actually sort of an underground market. And all the vendors push the boundaries of food as we know it, and they fuse technology in food. For instance, the coffee vendor roasts his beans with lasers. The pastry shop uses cricket flour in all of their cookies. And so for Lois, her niche is that she invents and develops a robotic arm that can stir and knead the dough. And so she quits her job to work full time as the baker at this underground farmer's market. As the book continues, there's a conflict between technology and nature. And I'm still not sure I totally understand it completely. I may need to study up on some microbiology to totally get the gist of it. But let's just suffice to say that the theme of the book is sort of an old versus new, natural versus high tech. So I had heard about this book because I had read Robin Sloan's first book, which was Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, which is also sort of a science fiction, magical realism. And there's also that tension between old and new. It's also set in the techie land of San Francisco, but it's more focused on an underground bookstore that holds some secrets. But in both books, there's also sort of a touch of conspiracy and things not being exactly the way they seem. So like I said, it's a quirky book, but I think that if you're a foodie and sort of interested in that anyway, if you like a little magical realism, then it, it might be up your alley. 
So when you were describing it, I kept picturing like, I kept waiting for it to go like into men in black territory, like the movie and mm-hmm. aliens. Is it, it... There's n- no aliens. Okay. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> there might be some men in black, but there's no aliens <laughs> okay. involved with just, it at just all. Just checking. All yeah. right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to ask Laura her top five. We are back with our guest, Laura Lucchese, and we are going to be asking Laura her top five. So, Laura, you said you volunteer with Hug Reading Program. Can you tell us what that is and also tell us the top reason you enjoy volunteering there? Hug is a Louisville-based reading program for students in second and third grade, and I absolutely love volunteering there, and we always need volunteers, but we service about 15 schools in the Louisville area, and we have one-on-one tutoring sessions with the second and third graders to kind of bring their reading levels up to where they need to be. I'm so passionate about children's literacy. Reading was such a big part of my life growing up, and I think it's important to have one-on-one time with the kids that need a little extra reading help to get them where they need to be. So do you sit with them and they practice reading to you? Is that kind of how it works? There's a workbook that you follow, so it's very straightforward. you read with them side by side and kind of work through the retention questions and things like that with the readings and have a little activity in there also. But a lot of it is just spending the one-on-one time with the the kid reading. Now, are you assigned to a certain school or are you paired up with a certain student that you follow long term or are you working with different ones all the time? Both. So I volunteer at two schools. At Lincoln Elementary, I have a student, and I had her last year as a second grader and this year as a third grader, and I can't even tell you how rewarding it's been to be with her these past couple years and see her reading grow, and that's been a very special experience. And then I also volunteer at Englehart Elementary, and at that school, I'm more of the the one in charge. We have 10 second graders, 10 third graders, and I help get the tutors matched up with their volunteer and make sure that the session runs smoothly. So I get to do a little bit of both. Is this coordinated through the schools or is it a separate organization? Hug is a separate entity and we kind of infiltrate the schools where we (laughs) see the need. So we're always looking to expand and add more schools, but to do that we need more tutors for the students. The biggest goal is recruiting tutors for the next couple years. So if someone was interested in becoming a tutor, how would they find out about it? You can go to hugreadingprogram.org. We have a lot of information on the website, as including how to become a volunteer, so check it out. So you also have an Airbnb at your home. So tell us the top best thing about doing this. We love hosting the Airbnb in our home. There's a separate entrance out back and it's a whole basement apartment. So we don't really have to interact with the people. We kind of let them do their own thing, but it's so fun. We live next to Cherokee Park. So we get a lot of people that want to travel with their dog and we are huge animal lovers. We love our dog. We'd love to be able to travel with him more. So I think our our niche is kind of the couple with their dog that wants to explore the neighborhood and not have to stay in a hotel and have the flexibility to bring their dog And I love giving that opportunity for people to check out Louisville. I think it's amazing. And we always give them a list of recommendations of our favorite local coffee shops they can walk to and restaurants. So it's it's good for the city. When you travel, do you use Airbnb places or? Yes, we are going to Cabo next week and we booked an Airbnb in Mexico. 
I've done it probably a dozen times. I feel super comfortable. I think it's an awesome way to travel a little bit more affordably without sacrificing, you know, amenities. So I, I'm into it. Highly recommend. My husband and I have three children. It's very hard to find hotel rooms for five people. You just, you either have to find a suite or you have to get two rooms. And so we tend to use VRBO, but you know, kind of the same premise. And we're able to get an entire house with multiple bedrooms and a place to do our laundry and a place to eat. And we end up saving so much money just because we're not having to go out to eat all the time and we can do our laundry. And so we've used that probably five or six times and we love it. We've always been happy that that we get one of those. So that's cool. We've used them quite a bit as well. And one of the things that I love about it is that, you know, they have sort of that that motto, live like a local, and you really can. So we have stayed in them when we were in London, uh, when we were in Quebec City, and they really were people's personal homes that we stayed in. I mean, they went and stayed elsewhere while we were there, but it was really cool to sort of see the world through a local's eyes. And so we've probably done it a dozen times as well. And I don't think that we've ever had a negative experience doing it. Same. So you are also a big puzzle person. (laughs) What is the top thing that you love about doing puzzles? And is there a certain type that you like to do? I grew up with my dad and we would be the puzzle people in the family and do them together. I still love doing them. Now I think it's because I miss listening to music. I listen to so many podcasts and books now that I kind of miss when I just listen to music a lot more. So right now I have one on my table. I do about a thousand pieces is my range and just it's my time to relax. I'm also not a big TV watcher generally, so something to do in the evenings. Can you listen to an audiobook or a podcast and do a puzzle? No. Okay. I I was wondering. I concentrate too much on the puzzle, so I focus when I'm listening to audiobooks and podcasts. That's more of a walking the dog. You volunteer with Olmstead Parks. Tell us your top local park and why it's your top. Cherokee Park, forever and always. I live so close to it. I'm there almost every day. And I think when I first moved to Louisville, it saved my life. I just was in a new city. I was alone often with my husband away at work most days. So I just find my solace there, my exercise there. I love love it. You'll see me there every day. So what kind of volunteering do you do for Olmstead? So I have a little patch of the park that I help try to maintain as far okay. as removing invasives, bush honeysuckles, a big uh, problem. We're trying to keep it not a problem at Cherokee Park. We just pick, kind of pick up trash pull the vines off trees just I try to upkeep a certain area of the park it's a huge park and we got to have volunteers out there to help maintain it and keep it looking good so do all the parks have volunteers like that that's a good question um you can go to Olmstead Parks to find more information about becoming a park steward and that's what I am that's what I'm referring to and I think everyone gets allocated a little piece of park my my part is close to where I live so it makes it convenient for me to pop over there and you know, spend 30 minutes a couple times a month just walking through it and picking up trash, like I said, pulling out weeds, that kind of thing. I'm sure all the parks need it. So obviously volunteering is a huge part of who you are and of your life. How did you get started volunteering? I think because I have the time to do it. I uh, moved to Louisville and 
became a property manager for some rental properties and then the Airbnb also, but I don't have a nine to five and I like to fill my time with things that fulfill me. So the children's like literacy and the parks, which I'm super passionate about. So that's why I think because I'm lucky enough to have the time to do it. Well, you're obviously a foodie and you love trying new things. So I know that you love to cook, but I'm sure that you eat out some. Do you have a top new restaurant or bar that you have tried recently? Yes. My friend and I are obsessed with trying all the new bars and restaurants. Uh, A new to me place that I hadn't been is Red Hog. I loved it. They just got a new chef. Their former chef went elsewhere, but it's still totally on point. Delicious, good vibes, good food. Highly recommend. And then also Butchertown Bakery. If you haven't been there yet, Butchertown Grocery opened up the bakery kind of in front of their restaurant. Really cool little spot. Delicious breakfast sandwiches and chai. So highly recommend. A very cool bar that I have gone to in the last year or two. And it's kind of a special occasion. It's not the kind of bar you would just pop into any old time and have a drink, but it's called Hell or High Water. Mm -hmm. And it's down near the Yum Center. It's kind of hidden away. And that's part of the charm of it because it's supposed to be like an old time speakeasy. So the front of it is very nondescript. I don't know that there's even a sign. You kind of have to know what the address is. And when you walk in, it's just a very small, little vestibule and there's a person behind a desk now the first time I went it was when they had only been open maybe six months and you had to pass a little quiz in order for them to take you back the second time I went they weren't really doing that anymore you know it's kind of a hark back to like the secret word that you had to say to get into a speakeasy during prohibition after you pass the quiz or not now they will take you down some steps and down some little hallways and back into this area that is it's basically in in the basement of this building but the walls are covered in brick it's rich red velvet seats Uh, there's several different rooms there's like some hidden rooms in fact they have jazz I think on on the weekends and it has just such great ambiance and is that the one that has the unique wallpaper yes it does have very unique wallpaper in the bathroom now i remember the drinks are expensive and that's why i'm saying that it's not like just like a neighborhood bar that you can go for happy hour with your friends and have a drink it's like a special occasion kind of place but it's a lot of fun and and it's a place that i like to take people to who are not from louisville it's kind of a a fun hark back to the days of bourbon and prohibition and yeah it's a lot of fun have you have you been there i haven't it's a popular date spot for my friends that are still like dating because of that the vibes and it's a little dark and mysterious and fun but they just have a couple snacks there they do i'm I'm always looking at menus over drinkless so i prefer a more robust snack situation yeah there's not a lot of food i mean they have a charcuterie board and they have i think a couple of different like little desserts but it's like bite size yeah so it's definitely not a place you can go and get dinner as well you need to either eat before or after but there's lots of great new restaurants coming into downtown louisville so it shouldn't be hard to find a place to eat thank you laura so much for for coming this has been fun this is unlike any other book club that we've ever talked about and it's making my stomach growl thank you thanks for joining us today for show notes for any episode please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com 
follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.